The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, May 21st, 2014. From Slate, this is The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Dot Amazon is out. So ICANN, which issues internet addresses and has been establishing top-level domains, which is like .com or .gov, but instead now there's a .hair or a .linzatart, or you can invest in .ninja, and I have, by the way. So a certain Seattle-based retailer wanted .amazon. Not so fast, said the nations of Peru and Brazil. It turns out, and who knew, that the Amazon is actually a river and a pretty big one, apparently. So if .amazon were to exist, it would, like, sully the river or bum out the piranha or lead to confused Americans booking flights to Polkalpa, forging upriver, then miles inland, and then frantically shouting orders into the raging waters of the Earth's largest river by volume. Yes, I'd like a six-pack of Hanes Beefy Teas and the Kindle version of the Time Traveler's Wife. Hello? Where do I specify shipping? I, I don't understand how this is any more convenient. So ICANN, the group that controls the top-level domains, I will now explain what they did by quoting from the website Domain Site. Under the rules of the new GTDL program, the NGPC could have rejected the GAC's advice. So that clears it up. Actually, it doesn't. In truth, ICANN just agreed with Peru and Brazil. You better not give anyone .amazon. So Amazon.com remains a juggernaut, but com.amazon or anything.amazon, sorry, we have got a river's reputation to protect. On today's show, the literal race against death to recover a huge trove of art bought and stolen by the Nazis. Also multitasking. We all think we could do it. Is it true? So as we conduct an IM chat about produce and as we FaceTime with our cousin about her bat mitzvah, we will ask, multitasking, is that bullshit? And in the spiel, non-mellifluous megafauna, a.k.a. pulchritudinous poultry. But first, Nazi art, where it came from and how it was recovered. The son of Adolf Hitler's art dealer died earlier this month in Germany. 1,400 pieces of art, some probably stolen, were in his possession. Under German law, he was not under any obligation to return the art to the families or museums. He could do with it whatever he wanted. But Cornelius Gerlitt ended up surrendering the art, and how that came to pass is an interesting story, as chronicled by Mary Lane in the Wall Street Journal. Hello, Mary. Hello. So, Gerlitt, Cornelius Gerlitt's father was Hildebrand Gerlitt, and he was Hitler's exactly. He was Hitler's art dealer. What does that entail to be Hitler's art dealer? Well, Hitler had uh, four art dealers who were responsible for doing everything from rounding up art that he hated, degenerate art, to also buying in some cases, but oftentimes just looting art that that he really loved. So, the father Hildebrand Gerlitt passes the collection down to his son, Cornelius. And what does Cornelius do? Just keep it a secret for years? Yeah, he keeps it a secret. And uh, whenever he needed money, he would invite people from from galleries such as uh, or, or auction houses such as Gallery Lempert's to come to his house and look at a piece of artwork and sell it. And, and that's what he would live off of. You know, Cornelius Gerlitt never married. Uh, he never had any children. He never had any any partners. And he lived in a flat with his mother, actually, until he was about mid-aged. And then he bought a different flat in the same building. And when his mother died, he 
in a slightly Norman Bates style thing, kept her apartment exactly the way it looked up until the point when she died. You know, Mr. Gurlitt lived there his whole life, um, and, you know, his biggest extravagance was going out and getting a cup of tea or coffee and, and getting a piece of cake. So he just kind of lived a low-key life until he was discovered as part of this this possible tax evasion case. So how did it become known that Cornelius Gurlitt wasn't just a guy who occasionally sold a painting, but was a guy who had this trove of Nazi art? Cornelius Gurlitt was coming back on a high-speed train from Switzerland to Munich, where his home was, with a wad of 9,000 euros in cash, which is just below the legal limit. But it was enough to make customs officials a bit suspicious, so they got a warrant to search his home and found these giant collection of art strewn all over the place, and they thought that he might have been an illegal art trafficker. So then Cornelius Gerlitz's art is confiscated for tax evasion, but not as stolen art. And in fact, German law not able to compel him to surrender the stolen art to be returned. But somehow they came to an agreement. How did that go down? The justice minister in Bavaria originally met with Mr. Gerlitz's lawyers on the 18th of January. And they had six different meetings, stops and starts, drama within the two camps. But they eventually had Mr. Gurlitt agree on the 7th of April while he was convalescing from major heart surgery in his apartment to let these uh, art historians look through his collection for a year and they could decide what had been stolen from Jews and return it carte blanche and he would get the rest of the artwork back. So mm-hmm. he, was, he was very sick and he kept saying that he was just desperate to see his, his art collection back before he died, which unfortunately for him he didn't get to do. How did he choose the Swiss Museum? He was just pissed off that the German government had taken his art away for two years. I mean, you have to understand that this is a man who said on record that losing his art collection was worse than losing his sister to cancer or his father in a car crash. How much is this collection worth? That's a really, really, really tough uh, question to, to try to figure out, because even though I do know the names of some of the artists who had major paintings in the collections, and there are works that look to be wonderful by artists like Emile Nolde or Henri Toulouse-Lautrec or Henri Matisse. The condition of the works hasn't really been determined, and we do know that the most valuable piece that was found in his apartment, um, and all the works in his apartment were in perfectly normal condition. Uh, The most valuable piece in the Munich apartment was a painting by Henri Matisse that is valued at about $20 million at auction um, on the private market, probably 8 to $10 million. Mm-hmm. The owners of artwork often can bump up the price of a work of art. Um, and so the man who owned that, Matisse, was uh, Paul Rosenberg, and his descendants include Anne Sinclair, who is the ex-wife of Dominique Strauss-Kahn, the IMF chief, and they're really fighting uh, to get that piece back because they you know, probably would end up selling it, in fact. Yeah. And so that that piece alone is worth $20 million. Yeah, and they're lucky that they could show that that was in their family. So along the way, you've documented he got upset, pissed off at the German government. He loved his art. Did he ever, is there any indication that he, you know, ever grappled with any of the uh, moral complications associated with this collection? There definitely is. Um, I never met him, but in our reporting, we talked to about 20 different people, including government ministers from, from Berlin, Bavaria, and also the people who personally knew him and worked with him, including those who saw him the day before he died. 
So, you know, from working with them quite steadily on background, it's become very clear to them that, you know, their, their initial frustration that he had really no idea how this was being perceived at the beginning of this, you know, situation, and he, he'd never even seen a smartphone, mm-hmm. um, kind of gave way once he started actually reading the media reports about himself, even in the hospital when he was, when he was uh, covering from major surgery, he was reading all of these reports, and that's when it kind of dawned on him that there were families who might want their art back, and he never thought that his father had purposely done something wrong, mm-hmm. but he thought that these families had a right to get back art that had belonged to their families. And I think in, a, in an odd way, from, from what I've heard, he kind of felt also like by going through with this and cooperating, he could clear his father's name and, and any kind of you know misgivings that people had about the fact that his father had cooperated so closely with Hitler. And, and he very much saw that as his his goal at the end of his life was to make people hear the name Gurlitt and not only have negative negative connotations. Mary Lane is a Wall Street Journal reporter based in Germany. She's been covering the story, uh, chronicling it in detail, the story of Cornelius Gurlitt's art collection. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. And Mary tweets at, at Mary Lane, WSJ. In days of yore, strength was prized as Hercules slayed Hydra and cleaned out stables. Then intellect became coveted as Einstein defined our world and Greg Kinnear made funny jokes on Talk Soup. Sure, there have been brief periods when it seemed like the ascendant virtue would be lack of shame or a talent for reinvention or even a sense for shareable content. But really, the prized asset in this, the pre-early mid-21st century, is multitasking. The ability to not do one thing well, but many things sort of undisastrously. And I have to admit, it is a conflict of interest for a podcaster to even question multitasking. Podcasts, audio in general, the most multitask-friendly medium around. But the question is, is multitasking, good, effective multitasking, even really possible? And to answer that question, here's Maria Konnikova, author of Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. She writes about science and psychology for The New Yorker, has studied psychology at the highest level, and uses that knowledge to come on the gist and answer the question, is this bullshit? Hello, Maria. Hi, Mike. Do we actually believe this is a new phenomenon? Is this an old phenomenon that we have a new name for? Is there evidence that, you know, we've been multitasking as humans or thinking we've been multitasking for millennia? Well, I think that there's evidence that humans have a tendency to multitask. So what we know about our brain is that it wanders. So its default state isn't a state of focus. It's a state of diffuse attention. So, you know, you notice that picture of water, you notice these headphones, and you're kind of, your attention is constantly all over the place. And so that is not new at all. That's something that we've had for centuries, for um, millennia, actually. But what is new is that the modern environment is specifically, is very, very good at taking advantage of our tendencies. And so it invites multitasking because there's always so much we can do. So think about, you know, even in the pre-smartphone age, what was that, you know, 15 years ago? And um, you couldn't... When you were waiting in line, you were waiting in line. It's not like you could start browsing the internet on your phone. You were just kind of standing there. Um, And now you never have to do that. 
you never have to be focused on one thing at a time because you always have a constant companion. You always have something that you can also be doing. And we tend to think that that's more productive. So I think, hey, if I have 10 stories open on my Chrome browser, I'm going to be 10 times more productive because look at everything I'm reading. So I think older people look at younger generations and they take a couple phenomena and maybe they conflate them. But I wonder what your thought is. Modern life, as you've said, has all these different distractions. And we also think we know, and I think this has been borne out, that the attention span is the whatever, however you define that, is seeming to suffer. And we correlate those two. Are they correlated? In a way, yes, but not in a not in the way we think. Yeah. So they're correlated in the fact that attention, just like anything else, is a is like a muscle. So the more we pay attention to one thing at a time, the better our attention span becomes. So if you get used to, you know, sitting down and reading a book for an hour, it might be hard the first time you do it, but it will become easier and easier because you're building that muscle up. Now, if you're training yourself to never focus on anything for more than 30 seconds at a time, that muscle atrophies. So you you're not used to paying attention anymore. And so, yes, your attention span gets shorter, but it's not that you're capacity has gotten shorter. Mm -hmm. It's just that you've retrained yourself. And so you can retrain yourself back. It's not like we've all suddenly acquired ADHD. We haven't. Right. So when we say, when a person says, and sometimes brags, I'm a good multitasker, I have to be a good Mm -hmm. multitasker, what are they really saying? They think that they're a good multitasker. So they think they're great at this. But um, there's a great study that David Strayer, um, who I've recently written about, um, did with his colleagues at the University of Utah. And they took college students and they asked them to rate how good they were at multitasking. Then they tested them. And they saw that there was a really great relationship, but it was inverse. Really? So the better you thought you were, the worse you probably were at multitasking. Because if you think you're bad, you're the kind of person who actually pays attention to Exactly. Things. Exactly. And there's also um, some work that was done about five years ago that shows that people who are heavy media multitaskers, so the people who use these kinds of open browser windows, all these streams, much more than people who are light media multitaskers, they end up being worse at task switching, which is the thing that you would think multitaskers are better at. So practice in this particular case doesn't make you better. It's not like if we multitask a lot, we suddenly become good at it. That's not true. Because our attention is atrophying, we become even worse at kind of these other things like task switching. So if you, I don't know, if we want to train air traffic controllers, Mm -hmm. maybe the best training is to have them read an Emily Bronte novel. (laughs) Just just increase the amount of retention. Maybe. And then there's, you know, the other way we can do it is to try to find, so the same guy who did these other multitasking studies, David Strayer, found that there's 2% of the population who really can multitask. But they're, it's not like a continuum. They're total outliers. Mm-hmm. So it's not like people become better and better. These are people who are totally different from us. Um, and he's called them super taskers. And he thinks that they gravitate to those types of profession like air traffic controllers or chefs at high-end kitchens right. where they have to juggle all these things at or once. Or I've been in the control room of a, a TV station exactly. or a radio station. Exactly. There's so many things going exactly. on maybe they're really good at it. Exactly. Yeah. So there are some people. Of course, um, the, the danger is as soon as you realize that there's 2% of the population who can do it, you disregard <laughs> everything I've just said and yeah. you think, I'm wow. in that 2%. There you go. <laughs> Um, Now, you mentioned something about retaining the information. How do they set up these experiments to see if people are really good at it and what they can actually retain and 
you know, how good they are at switching. Mm -hmm. So they normally have you do multiple things um, that involve both attention span and executive control. So you have to, for instance, do math problems and say, you know, is this math problem correct or incorrect? But at the same time, you're also memorizing lists of words. And so people will tell you, okay, now recall the words. So for instance, I'll say cat, two plus two equals four, true? Yeah. Dog, et cetera. And that's an easy version, obviously, cat right. and dog, easy to remember. But they do this up to groups of five words and five problems, which is really hard to do. Um, and they just start piling these on. And first, you just remember the groups of words. Then you just do the math problems. Then you put the two together. Then they have you drive a car while you're doing this, and someone's telling you to do this on a cell phone. And normally, people's performance just keeps going down and down and down because this is really, really hard to do. Has studying any of this changed how you work or your strategies? Absolutely. Um, I never realized how much I multitasked until I wrote about this. So I used to think that I was really, really good at focusing on my writing and only paying attention to one thing. And then I downloaded this program called Freedom, which blocks the internet for anywhere from a minute to eight hours. And I just did it on a lark. I did the free trial, the week-long trial, because I didn't think I actually needed it. Um, I ended up buying it because I realized that my absolute first instinct whenever I'm at the end of a sentence and I'm not quite sure what word comes next mm -hmm. is to do my, you know, Apple tab to go back to my email and check if anyone's emailed me because I'm very important. Yeah, and yeah. if anyone's emailed me in the last minute, I have <laughs> to get back to them right away. Emailed you, here's how to end the sentence. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I never realized just how much I did that and how much I switched between, you know, different tasks all the time. So I use freedom now to block the internet. Um, and I try to basically limit my social media presence. I started pre-scheduling some tweets yeah. so that kind of I get tweets throughout the day, but that's not me really tweeting them. So I've, I've yes, it's a, it's a big secret. Yeah. So I've, I've tried to implement some strategies that help me stay on task. But you know what? It's hard. Yeah. You know, I still do it. All right. Let's render our judgment. Effective multitasking. Is that bullshit? It's 98% bullshit and 2% super tasking. Maria Konnikova covers all sorts of issues like this for The New Yorker, and she comes on our show quite often to render judgments on scientific phenomena. We call it Is That Bullshit? Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Cockfighting is a crime in every state. It's a moral wrong, a source of shame. It actually was just a flashpoint in the Kentucky Senate GOP primary. As a society, we've banded together and said, cockfighting will not be countenanced. Chicken boxing, on the other hand. There's no blood. There's no death uh, to the chickens. They, but they can still fight for points, just as humans do in a, in a boxing ring. That was Louisiana State Senator Elbert Guillory on Baton Rouge Public Radio defending the proud, possibly invented tradition of chicken boxing. You take the little birdies, not more than a few months old. You put little boxing gloves or mittens on them. You have them train in the Catskills wearing only gray sweatsuits. You hire Mills Lane to declare, let's cluck it up. You get Michael Buffer saying, let's get prepared to pluck each other. 
No, in fact, you don't get any of that. And there might not even be an actual pastime of chicken boxing. But the Louisiana legislature was tightening up its anti-cockfighting measures as legislatures are wont to do, and they had to contend with an amendment put forth by Senator Guillory to exempt chicken boxing because he says the birds don't get hurt in chicken boxing. However, Humane Society of the United States Animal Cruelty Director John Goodwin plucked that argument nude by noting that the gloves are used in training chickens for cockfighting to assess their fighting abilities and called this chicken boxing sport, quote, a creative excuse the cockfighters have come up with to mask their real agenda, which is to maintain the weakest penalties for cockfighting as possible. See what the Humane Society guy did there? He didn't even say chicken boxing. He went right a couple of times to cockfighting because cockfighting still carries with it stigma. Chicken boxing is the whimsical pantomime theater version thereof. Which brings me to another animal name that isn't helping the bearer of said name. The Pentagon is tightening its belt and seeking to retire the Fairchild Republic A-10 Thunderbolt II aircraft. Now, Thunderbolt II, I mean, that is a cool name. You can't discontinue the Thunderbolt II, raining terror from the skies and all that. But wait, the Thunderbolt II is more commonly known as the Warthog. It is large and rumbling and deadly, but in a shooting at Soviet tanks during the 70s sort of way. If Pittsburgh Steeler linebacker Jack Lambert were an aircraft, he'd be the warthog. Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel hopes to save $4.2 billion by retiring all 283 warthogs. The warthog is a venerable platform. But who will speak for the warthog? Well, Pumbaa. Don't dismiss the warthog philosophy. Take it from me. He's got it all worked out. Take it from me. He's got it all. So we all know about charismatic megafauna, those species of large and attractive animals which naturally become plush toys. But what about mellifluous megafauna or good-sounding animals? Some marketers don't think we want to eat weird-sounding animals, so the Patagonian toothfish becomes the Chilean sea bass. Other times, the names of animals determine their legislative fates. Now, I don't really think that if the warthog were commonly known as the Thunderbolt 2, that it could be saved. I also don't think it should be saved. And I also wonder if it will be saved, because that old warthog's got a lot of fans, including a lot of congressmen who represent a lot of constituents who build the warthog. But you do have to wonder if the image of the warthog, a large flying iron bucket of bullets called the warthog, helps consign it to a bygone era. If imagery and names didn't matter, then maybe the warthog's replacement would be known as the Gila Monster or the Turkey Buzzard. Instead, the main successor to the plane that was nicknamed the Thunderbolt II, but always called the Warthog, is known as the F-35 Lightning II and never called anything else. And that is it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is our producer. She served in the 25th Infantry Electric Strawberry Division. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, piloted an F-102 Delta Dagger. You could subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. We have over 100 reviews. 80 of you wrote them up. Listen, don't give us a three-star review just to make the point that you can do a three-star review because I once made fun of the idea of a three-star review. I mean, if we deserve a three-star review, fine. But there are two three-star reviews and they both say, you know, I really should be giving you five stars, but I wanted to point out the three-star review exists. Point made, our average declines ever so little bit. We're also on SoundCloud and please do sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash 
slash gist email. Email the gist at slate.com. And I leave you with the Latin phrase splendor sign okesu, which is the motto of the 39th Canadian Brigade Group, Latin for splendor without diminishment. Thanks for listening.